Welcome back to Light It Red. Today we have a very special guest. Uh, go ahead and introduce yourself, Ethan. Hey everyone, my name is Ethan Bakajanis. I am the editor-in-chief at Technician, uh, NC State student newspaper, which is right next door. Um, before editor-in-chief, I was a sports editor and I'm still writing for sports all the time for Technician. Um, so I'm always out across campus covering sports. I mainly cover uh, both tennis teams, uh, women's soccer and baseball and football as well. So just happy to be here and chat it up with you guys. Yep, we're happy to have you. Um, today we're going to do a quick weekly rundown of what happened this past week in PAC athletics um, before jumping into a heavier segment with football. Um, we're going to talk about the, the quarterback controversy and how that's playing out. And then we have a new segment called What If, and we'll get into that more once we get towards that part of the episode. Um, so just starting off, we'll talk about men's soccer a little bit. Um, they've had two ranked matches in a row here, um, so it's it's been tough sledding for them. They uh, they lost to number six Wake Forest on October sixth. Um, they played Notre Dame before that and lost that one. So in the most recent game, they lost um, three to zero, and it was just tough from the beginning. Like they weren't getting a lot of possession time. Stone, I know you were with me, so that was one of Stone's first soccer games that he got to attend. And it was cool, but. Yeah, home loss, 3-0, not yeah. amazing start. No, they did not keep the ball on their side of the field. Like, yeah. possession time was was not good. Um, so, I mean, it shows. And Wake Forest is number six in the country for a reason, and we're 6-6. Six and six. So, um, that's just what it is. And we have a freshman goalkeeper. I can't figure out what's going on with that. We have a, we have a goalkeeper, and he keeps going in and out of the lineup, injury or something. I I'm not sure, but he didn't look. His Ben Vos, the freshman, didn't look too great. So, yeah. well, Wake Forest itself is a very good defensive team, so it makes sense why we weren't able to score. Yeah, um, and then yeah, there's five games left on the season, so there's not really a whole lot of time to turn it around. But hopefully, they can end on a on a high note here because end of October is approaching rapidly, um, and they have number 14 Duke on the road soon too. So that's going to be another tough one for them. Um, Ethan, if you want to go ahead and talk about women's soccer, I know you, yeah. you're very much into women's <laughs> yeah, soccer. Yeah, well, um, I've covered every women's soccer game this year and last year, so um, I can tell you firsthand that they're they're not doing great this year. <laughs> um, however, uh, I, there's a few reasons for it, but um, they did lose at Virginia Tech uh, last Thursday on 10-5, but they got their biggest win of the season against Virginia this past Sunday. Um, that one, you know, they played a complete 90 minutes of soccer, um, probably the first time they've done that all season. And it showed, you know, this team is definitely not, um, you know, it's definitely hard to compete with a lot of the really good teams, especially when you have teams like Notre Dame and UNC and the ACC. And ACC is always good for men and women's soccer. Um, but, yeah, so women's soccer just picked up their second win of the season, their first in nearly two months against Virginia. And um, they'll look to make a kind of last, uh, you know, with only six games left to go, they'll look to make a push for the ACC tournament. They'll play at Miami on Saturday and versus Syracuse, which are both winnable games. However, uh, they'll close the season out against Notre Dame and against one other good team. But, yeah, so um, they'll definitely look to win at at Miami and at Syracuse. Virginia, they were ranked at one point, right? Uh, Virginia is usually very good in soccer. I think this has also been a down year for them. So anytime you get a win against a top program, a usual top program like Virginia – is good um but again you know they're playing syracuse and miami which are right with them kind of near the bottom of the acc table and if they can get six points and you know leapfrog some of the other teams and get up to 
seven, eight, even if they don't make the ACC tournament because they haven't been, only the top six teams make it. Um, it'll still put them in a better position for the NCAA tournament. I mean, this is a team that has made the NCAA tournament six years in a row. Um, like head coach Tim Santoro is very good. You know, he knows what he's doing. But also, this team has already had two major season injuries, um, one that started way before the season even started with Jaden Thomas, and then goalkeeper Maria Cesaretta had a season-ending knee injury um, at Colorado. So um, this team's going through some stuff right now, and, you know, it has a lot of young players. So they're still trying to figure it out, but they show that they can definitely win when when they play a complete 90 minutes. For sure. I'm, I'm excited yeah. to um, see them play Miami. They've only, I was looking at it. They've only won one game against Miami since 2007. Yeah. So this is definitely an opportunity yeah. for them to beat And they it. hadn't beaten Virginia in, I think, seven or eight years. It's been, yeah. Yeah. Um, Patrick, do you want to go ahead and talk about uh, golf? All right. So we have some uh, men's and women's golf updates. Um, the men just finished playing at the Blessings Invitational in the Williams Cup. Uh, men's golf does not come back until February. Um, senior Spencer Oxendean, we'll, 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 we'll go with that, um, best finish, sixth place, one under par. Um, and then as for the women, they are currently in Chapel Hill for the Ruth Chris Tarheel Invitational. And they have two more Invitationals in October before breaking for winter. Um, and they and that is the Mercedes-Benz Collegiate Championship. Yeah. And then uh, just briefly, cross country, they don't have they haven't had a meet in the last week, but they're traveling to Wisconsin and ECU or ECU. And so that's going to be on the 13th and the 14th. There's two separate meets. So I'm interested to see how they divide the team up for those. Um, yeah, Stone, why don't you go ahead and talk about some volleyball? Yeah, some other quick volleyball updates uh, before this episode, meaning last episode, we were hopeful that they could potentially get in the top 25. Uh, they were on two road games. Unfortunately, they were not able to come away with W's in either of them, both in the state of Florida, playing Miami, and at Florida State. Both of them were close losses. We lost 2-3, to three, so we were one set away from taking a dub on both of these games. Not something I think we should be freaking out about. Road games are pretty hard in volleyball, and uh, they are ACC opponents, so they're not scrubs in any way. We are 13-4 and four currently on the season. However, all of these losses are not at home. Three of them are away, and one of them is at a neutral site. We are currently not in the top 25 talks right now, but I think two more home wins, which is our next two games, could potentially bring us back into that conversation. The next two games are at home versus Wake Forest and Virginia Tech. None of these teams are ranked, so ideally these could be two Ws that could try and propel us back into the top 25 talk again. Yeah. yeah I'm Me personally, I'm, I'm pretty disappointed about those two road losses because they seem like I didn't get to watch them, but they seem like very winnable games, especially coming off of that big win. You know, you, you hope and expect that the team can pull through and win these tough road matches. And um, I mean, they, they both went to five sets, like you said. So uh, they pushed those teams to their limits, but those teams are good too. Like Miami, um, they have a better income. They have a better ACC record than, than we do. And their overall record might not be as good, but they're still a tough opponent. And I think by that, end of the FSU game, they were gassed. Like, that was it. So, yeah, that's a bummer. But uh, Brizard had a career high in kills in that FSU game at 25. So that was something worth noting. But it's also kind of like, where was everybody else? That was my question when I saw that. Like, they, she had a career high, but then they lost the set. Or yeah, they lost I mean, the she's, she has the most on the team anyways, so that, you know, makes sense. But we Right, no, 25 is a big number. But, um, yeah, couldn't come away with those wins. Um, so that, that's pretty much all we have for the, for those sports, those fall sports just this week. Um, 
So from here, we're just going to jump into football. Um, obviously, football had a had a win against Marshall, undefeated Marshall. Um, and that's um, that one's up for grabs. Who wants to talk about football and, and how that game went? I'll, I'll leave it to someone else. I'll respond. I'll respond. Respond? Yeah, I'll give the response. <laughs> well, we had a, I wrote down a couple of my top performers. Um, I had MJ Morris, obviously had a very big impact in his first start. Um, didn't start off too hot. Um, I like Stone's comments in the group chat. Uh, you, I think you're. Did you watch it? Were you there? Or were you watching it on TV? No, I was watching it. Every pick, I added another skull emoji. That, yeah, I enjoyed that. <laughs> so I we think, started I off think, with one, and then we had two, and then we had three. I think yours was a little bit ahead of mine, like your stream or whatever you were watching it on, because it like before each pick, I would like get the skull emoji text, <laughs> so and then you, I'd be like, I and then I'd be, like I'd be like, oh god, there's no way, and then another MJ Morris pick. But I don't know. The first one was rough because that was when it went right through Casey's hands. Um, I actually do want to touch on Casey, though, because according to PFF, he did have a 91.5 PFF grade, which is the highest graded for week six among all power five schools. So he had a really good game. Um, two touchdowns, 102 yards on eight receptions. Um, that's kind of what we've been advocating for the last couple of weeks in this podcast, getting him more involved and being a little bit more creative on offense. And I don't even think that was necessarily the QB change. I think that was just they kind of figured out how to call offense, which I know you're Brendan Armstrong defender, so that you might you were kind of right that it was probably offensive play. Well, calling. not necessarily. I just you know, Ethan, you can respond, but I don't know if you had listened to the episode last time, but we had just kind of gone over the quarterback change, and my you know stance was just among all things, just summing it up that I am not sure it would be the best decision to do this in the middle of the season after losing two home games to two teams that were in the top 25 when you brought over an offensive coordinator specifically for that quarterback. And he had a terrible O-line, terrible receiving play, all the works. Um, I'll dive into a few stuff with the game, but uh, let us know your thoughts. Yeah, about my thing with the MJ quarterback changes, and Dave said literally said this, is that the biggest part of that change was the need to change it up. Because obviously something was not working. I mean, it was evident against um, Virginia Tech. Um, but, like, there was something obviously not working, and MJ came in and he did what he needed to do, which was provide a spark. I mean, NC State scored, hung 48 points on a defense that had been averaging tw- nearly 20 points a game. So, you know, I think even I do agree with you. And before this season, I had drank the Kool-Aid on Brendan Armstrong and I was a Brendan Armstrong believer. Same here. <laughs> Straight up. I was like, this is, I, I like the move. Like, I think it's going to work, but it, it kind of really started t- trending downward. Um, and I just think like a big part of the change was that they needed to change. They needed a spark and MJ is able to do it. And I think MJ does have a little more of that, you know, I think, his ceiling is higher definitely than Brennan Armstrong. And at this point, after that really rough loss, it's like, why not put him in and see what he can do? Because your eye test from the first four weeks of football was like, this is really not working and there needed to be a change. Um, so yeah, I, I think the Brent, the MJ move was great. I think he was really impressive. I still think that we're going to need to see another week of him to really figure out, especially against Duke, like, Prime time. Let's see what he can do when he doesn't have like wide open Michael Penix on. I mean, Trent Penix on two touchdowns. Yeah, I was. You know, with I mean, that's pretty much what my conclusion was after is that you know it happened, but you know I think you meant the Louisville game. You can't Louisville, really sorry. you can't really leave the Louisville game saying all right we're going to do the same exact thing we did. Yeah. 
And what's the easiest position to replace in terms of just switching one person in and out? Yeah. It's quarterback. You can't really – it's hard to switch in tackles because you got your best tackles. Receivers, you can try and throw guys out there. But generally, it's not going to be as consistent because they're starters for a reason. Yeah. Tight end, same thing. They're not going to have as much impact. Running back, I mean, we already run three different running backs anyways. Yeah. So that was pretty much the last straw to switch. Um, in terms of the game, I think Marshall definitely blew – some clear opportunities to win and my takeaway was almost like we wanted them to stay in the game and we wanted them to win I mean the Marshall had a wide open touchdown just like how you brought up we did and they just straight up missed it weren't able to get it and there wasn't really a ton of pressure on that play either uh the tackling was very poor outside of Peyton Wilson the linebackers were not really just wrapping up they had so many rack yards after catch um defense was just getting gashed in the secondary seemingly all game there were these weird onside kicks we were doing. I we're, still don't understand we're, those. We're trying to limit a return, but there's not really a major risk in the return because NCAA and football doesn't want people to return as much because they don't like the head-on-head collision, so they're changing the rules to where even if you kick it near the end zone, it's a touchback, yet you give it to them at the 43 or two times. Yeah. Really weird. I don't know why it's that was It's kind of a bizarre decided. game yeah. overall, too. I mean, uh, I mean, I don't understand that at all, but... Yeah. Just really dumb. I think the one thing to note on that is they did go one for five on fourth down. So a lot of the times when they did kick the ball at, or when they did like the weird on, just watching it was weird, but just doing the onside kick thing, when they would turn it over on downs around midfield. So that was, I, that's the only thing I could think might have been the reason. But still, but still, I feel like they were doing it too. I mean, they went one for five on fourth down, but they were, they were doing it like early on. So I think yeah, like, this was not it, at, like, it was at the end of the game and in the middle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like I, it wasn't like it wasn't like at the end of the the end of the game or like when they're doing it in the, like the middle of the game. It wasn't like they had like a big sample size of saying okay they're going to turn it over on fourth down a bunch. They were just doing it from the beginning and eventually it kind of did catch on. But I don't know. I thought it was kind of a bizarre decision because hopefully we don't do that again against like a again all the special team stuff was very bizarre. Like even Marshall was doing that. I get if you want to do that to Julian Gray because Julian Gray is a legit. He I mean he had almost two touchdowns, two returns against yeah. like VMI. I I mean, our punter shanked like a couple of punts. That the was rough. stuff with the kickoff was weird, and then the whole thing with the Marshall um, kicker on field goals—he couldn't kick a field goal unless it was like le- thirty-five yards or less. Was what the impression was yeah. when when I was covering it, at least. So, uh, kind of just a bizarre game, and they go up, and State goes up two scores, and all of a sudden, with like ten minutes left, and all of a sudden I look up, and Marshall is like set to drive down the field to score like a game-tying touchdown, and with like a minute left, I'm like, how did they? Like, how do you let that happen, you know? so Yeah. And, I mean, in regards to the MJ thing, um, obviously everyone was super excited, which I think, I guess, it's kind of warranted because you won a game. But um, I think we just need to calm down a little bit. Yeah. Uh, the O-line was so much better. Yeah. Even if you just watch the game, you know he's not getting pressured. They were actually top 10. They were in the top 10% in pass blocking efficiency this week. Only had six pressures and one sack, which was the best they've had all year, which is a good positive sign for the team in the O-line. I'm just saying in regards to just the fact that MJ is insane and that he's going to get these stats every single game. Um, Still had a good amount of overthrows. Obviously, some of these led to picks. I think we can also – we can say, hey, KC, you need to catch this pass, but it was not – it was not right on the money. He needed to reach out, and it went off his fingertips, Um, which, I mean, you know – it's a perfect example of KC because that's what's going to happen. He has his ups and downs, but he's easily the most talented player on offense. And as you brought up, he was the best performing receiver 
uh, Patrick, uh, you know, from last week. And I think that just makes us all super excited that he is at least going to get relative consistency. But that's just that's going to go on in the game. Uh, running The running game actually did something. Michael Allen uh, put together a solid rushing game. He had 70 yards on 10 carries, so 7 yards per carry. Very good. Mims was also pretty good, had a touchdown. Another one. Yeah, yeah. like killing it. Trent Penix had two wide-open touchdowns from coverage blows. Easiest throw he's probably ever going to make in his life. Um, and you add another touchdown that was just a jet sweep, quote-unquote, pass to KC. <laughs> the, they love um, the pop pass this week. So, you know, which I never really saw any of these jet sweeps to KC earlier. Uh, so I assume this is being just integrated because you can't run a QB draw anymore because they tried that one time and – MJ got blown up immediately, so that's probably what's going to be integrated in the offense aside from the QB draw because MJ just can't run like him. But I, I didn't think he was bad. It was just I think some people take it out of context because he he easily could have had one touchdown, three interceptions, and 55, 58% completion percentage, and people were not freaking out. Like and w- yeah. Even just the game itself, like I'm not sure that winning a one-possession game where they had the ball – with a minute left at home to a Sunbelt team where the quarterback could have easily, as I said, had one touchdown, three picks. I don't think that really makes me feel too <laughs> great anyways. Um, only thing is the O-line, I think, uh, played much better. And Peyton Wilson is a stud. He's yeah. our best defensive player. Um, and you brought up next week with Duke. Uh, Duke, even without their quarterback, is still one of the best coverage teams yeah. in the entire FBS. Uh, they're top five in coverage. So um, with it being also MJ's first game starting away from home, um, I don't want to say the game. I don't want to like necessarily say we're going to lose, but I think we just need to play nearly perfect football in order to come away with a win there. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, I think with MJ, it's like you're still the thing you're still wanting to see from him is, you know, if it, at Duke primetime game. He's been able. He's shown that he's been able to make you know pretty open throws. But what happens when it's third and twelve and you need to rope one down the sideline in crunch time? Is like, is he going to be able to step up and make those big time throws and big time moments? And there's going to be a lot of big time moments. In yeah, I don't Duke. know if you're going to have two wide open touchdowns versus Duke against Marshall. You know, and again, Marshall was undefeated and they were better in their conference, but they're not allowing these plays to like Akron. Or <laughs> right. like these other schools that are just not as good as ACC schools. Um, but that's kind of my takeaway. Griffin, what do you have anything else to add? Um, no, I agree with everything you guys are saying. Um, I, I took note of more of like, even though the defense let up 41 points, which was not very impressive to me, I was still impressed with some individual performances. Um, Robert Kennedy had a fumble recovery and an interception, easily his best game this season. He's a new player to this program. Um, so it's good to see someone in the secondary really doing well. I know Aiden White got uh, banged up in this game. That sucks. That's really bad because Shaheen Battle had some you know, issues, obviously, against Louisville and in this game, to be honest. Um, Kennedy's been awesome all year, but, yeah, that's definitely unfortunate. Well, and Rakeem Ashford was declared out for the rest of the season, too. Yeah. And he played. that's a major loss. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so defense is banged up, but so I mean that probably plays a role in why they're giving up so many points. But again, like Peyton Wilson, um, linebacker of the week in the ACC for the third time this year. Um, I know you mentioned Casey; he was rookie of the week again, second time this year. So there are individuals on this team that make me feel good about, I guess, the rest of the season. I know Wilson's not going to be on the team next year. I'm 
pretty sure. Like, no, he's, he won't. He's You'll done. be watching him on Sundays. That's for yeah, sure. absolutely. I, I agree. Um, it's definitely that draft stock is definitely going up. Absolutely. Just with he's, him making the decision to stay one final year is going to pay dividends for his career yeah. overall. Or it might save jobs because if he's not yeah. there and we do these decisions, we could be not favored in games against like Tech or yeah. like Virginia Tech or games against Wake Forest, which we would be in this case. But he's such a huge part of the defense. Yeah. It's it, really nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how they perform against Duke on the road. Um, Riley Leonard is day-to-day. That's the official word on his injury status. I think it was a high ankle sprain. So um, I don't know. Most of the time I see that injury designation, especially from quarterbacks, they tend to play. So he might not be as mobile. Um, so that'll that'll be interesting to see. I'll tell you what, though. He's he's still going to be pretty good. He's I mean, he's a NFL caliber quarterback maybe not the one in the same spotlight as like a drake may but yeah. um this is still going to be a huge huge um task at well, hand yeah we'll see about riley leonard i know the vegas line was at like two or three which seems to suggest that riley leonard might not play because i don't know if they're going to give them that many points um give nc state that many points if riley leonard isn't playing but yeah we'll see i think if he does it it becomes a lot tougher for NC State really quick. Yeah. Last thing I want to bring up for the football game, uh, I think, I don't know if you guys also had opinions on this. Um, Peyton Wilson, after the game, um, had comments. If you didn't watch, Armstrong came in for one or two plays. Uh, They were in the red zone. It was two plays. They were in two or three. They were in the red zone. They were trying to do, obviously, these runs um, with him because he's more mobile, maybe, you know, potential, hey, we just want to get it in there with someone. Um, they did a play action. He got sacked. Uh, then obviously the fans started booing, as expected, because um, they don't like him. And uh, Wilson came out and was kind of saying, "Hey, uh, I think I don't have a quote on me, but I remember it was pretty much along the lines of, we need to stop booing Armstrong every time he comes in.' And I think that just made me like him even more. Not just because I have been not someone who's like saying Armstrong needs to be on the field right now. Get him. He's like so much better." Yeah. Um, but I, I just think it's the worst. One of the worst things you can do if you're a program or coach is let the fans run the team. There's a reason they're not running the team because they're fans. And if you're going to let them dictate what you're going to do, it not only makes, you know, your offensive play calling, you know, not as, uh, big in terms of what you can do. Uh, it, can really dictate a lot of the opinions of people in the locker room or around the team. And I think this is good that we finally actually had someone come out and say that because I don't think it's good to, you know, boo all these players, you know, who come out, especially when the margin is so close between them. Like, I just brought up all that stuff. He easily – MJ could have had a horrible game. And what if he what if he plays terrible against Duke and Carolina and Miami? Are you guys going to freak out and try and get Armstrong to what come back in there? What if he gets there? hurt? Yeah, and Armstrong has to come back. Yeah, what are you and it's do? like you're you're coming going to be coming back in with no support. Are you going to keep booing Armstrong then? Yeah, I think it's also interesting to note like these are all. I mean, I mean, KC for example, just these are all young people. Like none, of, yeah, these are not professionals by any standard. I mean, obviously Brennan's a, a graduate transfer, but like none of these are professionals. It's a lot different if you're booing a like. 35 year old professional athlete and then a, millions uh, of dollars yeah and then a, yeah, getting paid millions of dollars in their job and then a kid that attends our school like it's a lot different and i, I agree same thing if he gets hurt like what what's the you, like how do you think he's going to react when you put him back in and then he has 
apart from the fact that he's going to be going again. Like, so let's say if MJ gets hurt against Duke, obviously we don't want that to happen. But let's say he gets hurt against Duke, you're now having a guy come in against a difficult team, and then he has no sense of like backing from the fan base. So it's like there's no point in booing him. Might as well support him and then just let him get acclimated to that role. So then if he has to come in, he has fan support. But, or if you know he's like I said, if he's bad in games, I wouldn't be surprised if they put Armstrong out there because they've clearly shown the. De- you know they're able to switch out whenever they feel necessary, yeah. but I don't know. That's yeah. just something I saw and I thought absolutely um, was kind of interesting to bring up. Yeah, and you know the thing with Armstrong is like you know these are all like you said these are all kids our age. They're in our classes and they're walking around campus too. Like you said, they're not getting paid millions of dollars to do this. And I mean, you know, I've met and talked with Brennan multiple times this season, and I mean he's like the definition of like leadership and a stand-up guy. His comments throughout the week, even after MJ was declared the starter, was, you know, like, perfect. Like, you wouldn't expect anything less from the guy. I mean, he was still one of their team captains leading up on, on the field He during the coin toss against Marshall. So, obviously, like, he is very much still going to be a leader in the presence. And Peyton Wilson, I mean, I think a, so much of what he said reflects back on him, too. Because I, when I was watching the press conference, or when I was there, he starts walking off, and then he comes back on, and he's like, Wolfpack Nation, I love you guys, but we've got to stop. And he was mm-hmm. absolutely right. I mean, it gives you a little glimpse in the locker room of who Peyton Wilson is and who both those guys are. I mean, I if I was like an NFL coach looking at, I mean, personality and those types of characteristics Leadership are really important traits. in the NFL. Absolutely. Ten times out of ten, I'm drafting that guy over someone, even if like someone else is like you know a little bit more talented than it. I mean, Peyton Wilson is a plus character. Yeah. Yeah. That um. I mean, we were both there in, yeah. in that press conference, and um, when they booed him, when they booed him, it was it was very uncomfortable for me. Yeah, sitting yeah, up it there, was. I kind of like covered my mouth, like watching Brennan go on for like a red zone package, um, which wasn't even a dumb idea. No, either. I don't think it is either. Like, He's mobile. He, he like, could run it in. Definitely totally. work. I think it was yeah. just excellent. Like, it, I feel like the. If that had worked, and like, I mean, he got sacked, so like, there's really nothing he could do. You're gonna if, boo a touchdown? Yeah. If that worked, the perception of it would have been so much different. Like, I, I think the fans would have been like, "Oh, this is great. Brennan's gonna, uh, we can use him in Big like these, Cam Newton. Yeah, 2. Cam 0. Newton. Yeah, like, like, like he's gonna have this athletic role and he can come in and red zone blah, formation stuff like that. But then it's like it just didn't go the way we wanted to. And yeah. obviously, that was I the, think fan the X's and O's. Like you said, I think they're fine, especially if you like kind of fake a QB run and he can still pass and you yeah. can get some open looks. I think that's fine. I mean, he'd even run a play and people were booing him off the field. Yeah. So it's an extremely talented, an extremely talented player to have yeah. for that type of role. But yeah, all that's, you know, super interesting. Um, and, you know, it does it does show a lot about Peyton's character and yeah. and really Brennan's character and yeah. how he's handled that. So. Yeah, we, we'll see how that plays out, um, whether they use one or two quarterbacks. All right, for our third and final segment today, uh, we have the what-if idea that we came up with. Um, basically, it's, I mean, pretty self-explanatory. It's, you know, take a moment in NC State athletics and alter it. What if this happened? What's the chain reaction? What's going to happen? Um, and there are so many different things that you could pick with uh with that concept so each of us um we have we all have something that we want to talk about and just kind of have fun with this so stone what's your first what if so let's just close our eyes for a minute and imagine a what if scenario this one's related to basketball and it is probably the most recent one um on 
that you're going to hear today. I don't think anyone else has anything from literally this past year. Uh, but it is the 2022-2023 NC State basketball team. And it may be recent, but if you really dive in, especially at the end, obviously, with the tournament, which is the biggest thing that goes on in college basketball, I think everything was realistically set up for a potential big run for State this year. Uh, they were able to sneak into the tourney as an 11 seed. Now, I say sneak in. They weren't the last ACC team in. Pitt was the last ACC team in where they had to play a play-in game to get in. But still, 11 seed is the last seed that an at-large bid is able to get in, meaning that you don't win your conference. You just got to try and win games to get in. Um, and 11 seed is the lowest for, like, Power 5 schools. Uh Again, got seeded as an 11. Unfortunately, they were matched up against Creighton, which even at the time, it really helped my bracket because I, I bet money on them. Uh, they were clearly one of the most underrated teams in the tournament. Um, this game, even in itself, when we versed them, was very close. Uh, but we obviously weren't able to finish it out in the end. And I, it was really due to some uncommon play from different guys on the team. Uh, total... They shot 21% from three. Normally, it was 35, so that's a 14% difference. That's pretty big. Three other starters, Jack Clark, Jarkel Joyner, and DJ Burns, all shot seven for 29 combined, making less than a quarter of their total shots. Traquavion had more than half of the team's points while still shooting 44% from the field. And normally, they have a plus three turnover margin, meaning that they are creating more turnovers than they're giving up by a margin of three. In this game, they had minus one. And State had created the most turnovers in the ACC going into this game. Even if just one other starter would have stepped up, they absolutely have the potential to win that game because Smith was on a roll. He was absolutely insane. And again, if just one other person could have scored a little bit more or did something, I it's very possible that they win that game. That was one of the closer games that Creighton was even in besides the last game that they ended up playing in the Elite Eight. Now, let's just say hypothetically we win that game, which is not very far-fetched. Next would have been number three, Baylor. And I, you're probably thinking, well, we probably lost that because it's Baylor. Now, Creighton, who beat Baylor, this Baylor team was coming into the game and they had huge foul issues the past like six games even versus Creighton they ended up having 21 fouls and they also could not create turnovers they had one of the lowest created turnover ratio and rates in the Big 12 which is their conference going into the game and one thing if you're playing against a guard heavy team if you can't create turnovers they're going to have the ball in their hands more and they're going to be able to make shots more and that is a matchup that just definitely favors NC State and if Baylor lost to Creighton, I think they could definitely lose to us because they were not as strong of a three seed. So that's a three seed that we could beat. Now we're in the Sweet 16, and I know you're thinking, oh, we're going to play a two seed. No, we play Princeton if we win that game. Number 15 seed. <laughs> they had their fun, but they would not beat us. They had, some 15 seeds have their cap. None of them have even made a Final Four. Only one has even made an Elite Eight. I, they weren't even that amazing of a 16th or 15th seed. They just happened to beat Arizona, who was not a good two seed, and Missouri, who was just kind of a whatever SEC team. So that means we're in the Elite Eight, which is a phenomenal season. And even then, you think it ends at the Elite Eight. We play San Diego State, who's a great defensive team, especially in the paint. But what did I just bring up about guards? 
State wasn't relying on big man scoring. DJ Burns could go a game with scoring two or three points, and we could win if guys like Jaquavion Smith and Jarkel Joyner, again, if Jarkel Joyner only did a little bit more, we would have been able to win that Creighton game. It's possible to win that matchup. Obviously, it's not in our favor, but if you're looking at the teams, who has the best player on the court? It's NC State because Jaquavion Smith would have been the best player in that game, and it's possible that they beat them. I'm not guaranteeing it, but I'm saying it's very possible. And then if they win that game, in the Final Four, they play number 9 FAU, <laughs> which was a solid team, but it's the same thing as San Diego State, except they're a little more offensive instead of defensive, and Jaquavion Smith is still the best player in that game. Now, I think we would have been obliterated by UConn but, um, in the title game, but even just the possibility of going to the lead eight, going to the Final Four, or going to the title game, the road was not very hard. It was very realistic, and one that I truly believe is the Elite Eight. I think the two games I had brought up against Creighton and Baylor, they totally could have gotten past, and Princeton I don't think is anything. They're a throwaway, and I relatively would have picked San Diego State, but it's the tournament. Anything can happen, and we've seen a ton of seeds lower and and the same rank go far. Uh, Five of the past ten tournaments have had a 16 or have had an 11 seed, go to the Elite Eight. So half the time in the past 10 years, an 11 seeds made it that far. And State was clearly the best one. They put up the best fight. And Creighton obviously ended up going to the Elite Eight. I think they could have taken their spot, and we maybe could have felt so much better going into this season. Interesting. I think, I mean, that definitely speaks to the madness part of the Marsh Madness. Um, I think an interesting thing to explore with all of that is if – the other center on the team, Dusan Mohorchich, if he doesn't go down, then maybe he could have like run the floor with Ryan Kalkbrenner, the seven foot one center who was killing us with a pick and roll in that game. And then DJ's not getting exposed on defense the entire time in foul trouble, which is what happened. So um very interesting. I like that stone. Patrick, what do you have? So I had Devin Leary's uh Pecter against Florida State in the 2022 season. So for a couple of reasons, I think it was interesting because after he tore his pec, we had a QB carousel. We had um, Jack Chambers, MJ Morris, and Ben Finley. And if you don't remember, we had MJ, MJ Morris. That was when he had his um, Cinderella, like, two or three-game stretch, but then he also got hurt. And before we had MJ, we had Jack Chambers, who was a graduate transfer, um, and then Ben Finley, who's obviously not on the team anymore. So I think the interesting with that is just how, how much different the team would have looked and then also Leary's draft stock, and also the fact that he transferred after um, that season. Um, Leary had a five, we had a five and one record um, leading into the Florida State game, um, and this is this is also coming off of his previous season before when he was healthy. He had thirty five touchdowns, thirty five hundred yards, and only five interceptions, and we were nine and three record. That was the season when we had uh, we were ranked twentieth, and we would have had a ten win season if we beat UCLA in the bowl game, but um, it got canceled because of COVID. Uh, well, the UCLA uh, team was tested positive for COVID. They didn't let uh, the NCAA know. But uh, it was it, – it's just – it's difficult to look at because seeing Leary and obviously the, how he was coming off of that 2021 season, um, I feel like – obviously we had the, the Chapel Hill win at the end of the season with Ben Finley, but I do think that that team could have definitely had a similar um, result as the 2021 team did. Um, definitely a top 25 ranking – um, could be better, 
but that's that's kind of just a big what if what if that just didn't happen and the team had a lot more consistency because as we've seen now having a having to switch out QBs usually doesn't end the best because it means that there's going to be a rough start um, in terms of his draft stock and then transferring um, after the season he's it was uh, with MJ Morris obviously showing some promise and then um, coming into this year I know Stone that you've noted in previous episodes that the wide receiver talent is kind of mediocre um, in terms of personnel, um, Kentucky t- Kentucky was definitely a good, or I guess you could say appealing route, because um, heading into the season, or heading, I guess you could say off-season and, and the transfer season, um, it looked like that Kentucky was going to have really good receivers. And then also that we've seen with um, Will Levis, who wasn't the best, but the pro-style offense um, give, makes you a lot more marketable NFL teams. That's kind of why Leary transferred. Um, and heading after the 2021 season, um, Leary was actually getting a lot of attention in terms of the draft. Um, obviously, I think that this is maybe a bit of a stray um, from the general opinion, but there was a couple uh, mock drafts that were they were throwing Leary into the like late first round, and I think that and then now he's if you've uh, paid attention to Leary this season with Kentucky, Kentucky's good. But Kentucky fans have been on Leary's head this whole this whole season because just because of lower completion percentage, um, not being able to stretch the ball downfield, and just overall inconsistency, which is crazy because if you watched him in the 2021 season, that was exactly what he was good at. He was consistent and he could stretch the ball down the field. And now after that pec injury, it just seems like he he cannot do any of that at all. Um, so yeah, that's kind of really all I had for that one. Yeah, just real quick, I mean. You brought up Leary. I think he had like 86 passing yards in a dominant win over Florida. Yeah, so they're kind. He's kind of getting help at, there. Um, this is gonna. This is gonna sound kind of random, but I was looking at a. It was a, like an in-depth Reddit dive someone did on um, Leary's performance this season, and then also like what's it gonna look like for his draft stock. It's just not the same player at all, and it's really unfortunate because if he pre, I mean. Even though I don't think that the 2022 season, his stats so far before the um, pec tear weren't as good as the previous season, because that's a pretty hard season to replicate, I still think that he would have been um, a lot highly touted coming out of uh, college now, and now he's looks like he's going to be a hopeful for a dra- or just a team workout yeah. instead of a possible mid-round pick. Interesting. I know with both of our stories, it's, mine's obviously more related to like, oh my god, they might win something yeah. big. But even with that, this affects recruiting, so mm-hmm. the... Butterfly effect is definitely like, hey, they NC State succeeded with this. Maybe we could get these kind of players and yeah. stuff. Yeah, and I wonder how much of that the SEC football exposed Leary a little bit, because you know playing at Kentucky and playing the SEC, it's a whole different, a different breed, it's a different <laughs> level. I mean, SEC for all those teams have NFL players on every part of their roster, and it's just not the same as the ACC. So you know, I wonder, like again, you know, you talk about the butterfly effect. If Leary does stay in you know, at NC State, and he doesn't tear his peck, and he gets drafted, you know, decently high, you know, his draft stock is, I think, really impacted because he's playing against SEC schools now, and, you know, NFL scouts are probably like, I don't know if this guy can really hang with NFL level yeah, defenses. Yeah, I follow the is draft really a ton. I, I haven't yeah. seen him exactly, anything. Which is just so unfortunate, because, I mean, this is just a player that had so much potential, and obviously, I think... I mean, obviously, we hold a little bit of a bias because he's an NC State player. I think first, late first round is definitely a little bit too high um, when he like when he was coming off the 2021 season. But still, I think I mean, going from mid round to undrafted, is especially pretty... you see someone like Will Levis fell so hard. Yeah, you know? yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Uh, Ethan, what do you have? Yeah, so I was going to talk about um, 
What if uh, Kevin Keats was fired after NC State basketball's 2021-22 season? Um, you know, looking at it, that was a season where NC State went 11-21. and It was one of their worst years in memory. Um, and they didn't do much better the year before that either. So, you know, and there was a lot of rumors. I'm pretty sure there was a technician article someone wrote that said, you know, Kevin Keats should just be fired. And it wasn't a crazy take at the time. Was you it know? you? No, it was not me. I think it was <laughs> you? Wade actually wrote that. <laughs> it was uh, Wade, I think, wrote a column. Or at least, like, let's consider it. Because it was definitely out there, you know. There was big considerations. Like, this, going into the last season, if Keats didn't perform well and NC State do well, he was probably gone. Um, but you know what? In the end, 22-23 um, was their best season in recent memory. Um, and I think a lot of it was up to, you know, it can be attributed to Keats because of how well he did in the transfer portal. And I think college basketball, way more than college football, is you you, you need your coach to be able to perform in the transfer portal. Um, and by going and getting Jarko Joyner and DJ Burns, I think he absolutely turned around the trajectory of this program. But um, that summer, but honestly, that season could have gone way, way differently if Keats wasn't there. I mean... Ne- you know, don't even think about Jarkel and DJ. Do we think that Turkavion Smith would come back if Kevin Keats was fired after that season? Probably not. I think, you know, in 10 years, people will look back and be like, that is the like defining moment in Kevin Keats's career is getting Jarkel and DJ. And then if he is able to follow it up with another good transfer portal class this summer, I think that's one of his strongest assets. I mean, if you look at the 21 team, they didn't, they weren't able to beat Duke or UNC, your big rivals, and they got blown out by both. I mean, just by going off of that, you beat Duke and UNC last year. I mean, it's just he they really were able to turn around the program. Which obviously, both those programs had, yeah. you know, not the greatest. That's true. Uh, <laughs> especially yeah. Carolina. But still, it's always great when you're able to get yeah. dubs on those. Yeah. Yeah, and we would have no uh, Kevin Keats Jr. probably. That's true. Which would be a huge loss to the Hopefully he becomes a stud. <laughs> He's developing. Um, for mine, I had a football one just like Patrick. Um, mine was about Russell Wilson. I don't know if you guys follow Russell Wilson a whole just a lot. Bit. Just a little Let bit. Him cook. Um, Let him cook. Let him cook. <laughs> He's I Broncos country. I personally Let's tried. Ride. <laughs> <laughs> um. So what if what if they let him play baseball his senior year? Is what my what if was. Um, not that they. So this, I mean, there are a lot of he sh- he said she said type of deal around this. Um, so it was it was a little hard to research, especially since I was um, nine years old when this was going down. So I wasn't really like in the loop a lot. Um, but I mean, he came in a two star quarterback, so nothing super special on paper. He also played second base. Um, he was pretty good at both. Um, and then this went on for three years where he was doing both and he was playing minor league baseball by the beginning of his senior season. Um, and head coach at the time was Tom O'Brien. He told him this is what Russell said in, in 2016 at some Wisconsin thing, which is where he transferred. Obviously he was just saying like, they told him that he wasn't going to see the field, uh, his senior year. If, not not if, just like that wasn't going to happen. Like he missed a spring practice and then that was it. That was the final straw for the for Coach O'Brien. And so that's why Russell transferred. Um, all that being said, 
uh, I was talking to a couple of people about this and they said that the baseball thing was a huge part of it. So like, that's my what if part, but also Russell Wilson has had an attitude issue like for a long time. Mm. And it was under wraps in Seattle when he went pro because his head coach was Pete Carroll and he had the Legion of Boom and Marshawn Lynch and Richard Sherman, all these personalities around him. So he's not, no one was looking at Russell Wilson. And now he gets to, to Denver, the Broncos, and they're all esteemists are like, who is this weirdo? So um, I think that was exposed very early on with, with Tom O'Brien and, and Russell not going to practice and prioritizing baseball, which wasn't something that, you know, I don't think he would have been able to do at a high level. Dion or Bo Jackson, like, I don't think that, you know, even maybe Kyler Murray, like, I don't think Russell was on that level. Um, so I think if, if for some reason Tom O'Brien was like, you know what, that's fine. Like you miss spring practice, whatever, just come back. Then, then Mike Lennon doesn't get the start the next season. I was just about to bring that up. I was literally looking up. I was going to say that affects Mike Lennon. Mike Lennon. Well, I know he's Mike gone, Glennon legacy one. He actually was good in the well, two years. I was going to say the played. record did not drop off, like from Russ to Mike Lennon. Um, so I don't, as far as NC State football goes, I don't think it would have made a huge impact. But as far as Russell goes, I think it changes everything because being at Wisconsin was a more, you know, pro style offense over there. And even though he still went in the third round, I don't think being at NC State, he still would have played baseball and he wouldn't have been able to focus on football as much. And so I don't think it works out for Russell Wilson if he stays at NC State and plays baseball and, and football his senior year. Baseball is one of the hardest sports to play, so that's yeah. obviously going to be a big deal. But yours is probably the biggest in terms of just sports in general because if Russell Wilson plays baseball or if he doesn't, even if he even if he stays at State, that'd be so much different. If he never goes to State, plays baseball, does whatever. But Obviously, that affects literal NFL Super Bowls. Right. And Patriots as a diehard Patriots fan, oh, oh no, <laughs> Russell Wilson never throws that ball to Malcolm Butler, <laughs> yeah. and the dynasty is over. You might be playing so, a hey, different team. You may have been you, playing yeah. a uh, Cam Newton-led Panthers team, and uh, it would have yeah, been your butt. Let's calm down. And then I'll wake well, actually, up, that would have been that would have been the Packers because that was well. Actually, they'll probably choke regardless. That doesn't really matter. Or maybe if the Niners, you want. Little Colin Kaepernick come in there and do anything? I mean, I honestly that the Russell Wilson Seahawks. I mean, we're getting a tangent here, but that was a great team. And I mean, either Marshawn Lynch and even this insane catch on the sideline with uh, Curse, you know, even to get that spot. But yeah, I, I sorry, I don't mean to cut you off, but you know, the whole no, thing with good. Russell Wilson is like it's so interesting because everyone right now knows he kind of has like this like he puts up this facade yeah, as like such it's, a gold. It's so ingenuine. Yeah. And it's so obvious. And like how does he have not have like self-awareness about this? Like the whole thing with like in Denver like doing the exercises down the plane. <laughs> yeah. Like and then Sean Payton calling him out. I mean like it's, this off season. It's it's just bizarre. And I was watching um it was the Shannon Sharp and Marshawn Lynch uh interview and it's just like he, Russell in um Russell in like Seattle, that it's just very weird to hear because obviously Richard Sherman and Marshawn Lynch are now media personalities, and you're you, they're they're gonna speak out on it, and they're obviously two big personalities in general for just a locker room sense. And just hearing how Russell Wilson was like very protected, and like how you said that he had some like um, personal issues or personality issues, you could say, with terms of like 
accepting, you know, I can't play baseball. And then he took that personally. Um, it's just weird to hear. Because even when he was in Seattle, he had like the, it was more, it was like, oh, okay, he's the golden boy. He's this good guy. And then once you, it's everything's kind of kept under wraps, like you said, Griffin. But then once they, t- once he's getting taken out of that environment and now he's in Denver where he's not having Pete Carroll to like, everything sh- like, starts like, unraveling. Yeah, like, like, like quiet it down whenever anything happens. Like Marshawn Lynch really said that there was like an issue in practice and he, um, the players were like going to talk to Russell, and then there he was like, "No, don't talk to him. If you have an issue with him, come to me." Which is just bizarre because right. it's like, like he doesn't give his phone number out. Yeah, he doesn't give his phone number, and it was just like, "What?" Like that doesn't even like I, I've never. I mean, there's obviously bad teammates in the NFL, but I don't think I've ever heard someone be like put on like a like a, like a pedestal because of just how he act. Like it's like I don't think any QB in the league was put on like a pedestal in terms of coaching staff and player personnel like Russ was in Seattle. I mean, winning fixes everything, especially in the NFL. But and then when yeah. things got turbulent with Russell, that's when you started to see all the personality stuff. Yeah. And it's in really interesting. Like I never knew this about Russell when you until you brought this up, Griffin, but like things started getting turbulent at NC State and he kind of showed flashes of that like kind of diva mm-hmm. personality. And yeah. that's super interesting that like that came up because obviously we've seen it now in like the twelfth man was probably the one of the biggest parts of Russ's career. I mean, because what if they don't have that defense and things are turbulent in yeah. Seattle off the rip? It's just, yeah, that's a that's a great what yeah, if. Yeah, that's that's what I was going to say. Winning changes a lot, and it yeah. covers a lot, and that's why. To his credit, though, I think, or just in the story in general, it wasn't coming out until he was had Nathaniel Hackett in Denver, who was his first time as a head coach, and he clearly didn't know how to cover it up, and it's not really – the only reason you're knowing about it now is because past people are talking about yeah. it, not because it's happening with Sean Payton right now. He's not dealing with any of that crap. He just doesn't – yeah, that's not going to go on in, in his place. And to his credit, he actually is not playing too bad right now. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, definitely an interesting story. All right, and we have one last one, Stone. You're going to go over really quickly, right? Yes, we're going to end this off with <laughs> Jimmy V. Um, this is, I think, the biggest what-if in NC State Athletics history. Uh, so, if you don't know, Jimmy V, Jim Valvano, was the coach for men's basketball for NC State for all the 80s. He ended his tenure right after the 89-90 season. I think he's the best coach they've ever had. I think a lot of people would also agree. He made the tournament in seven of his ten seasons. He had a 65% winning percentage. No one has been able to eclipse that since then. He made one Sweet 16, two Elite 8s, and obviously won a national title, our most recent national title. Unfortunately, though, his reign was stopped shortly after, and it is not necessarily due to age or because he just wanted to move on. Um, Vavano's final season in Raleigh definitely had a lot of controversy after the release of a book that came out. It was called Personal Fouls, and it was written by a a guy called Peter Golenbach, and this book had alleged improper practices and a, quote, lack of institutional control in NC State Athletic Department. The allegations included stuff like fixing grades for players to go and play, lowered the attendance and entrance requirements for different athletes that could actually get into state, and also the selling of tickets and sneakers by athletes to other people. Uh, These claims were obviously refuted by Vavano, as well as the chancellor at the time, Bruce Poulton. Uh, They claimed that some of the players may have sold some of their shoes, but that it was all to this ACC super fan who was apparently, you know, very well known in the ACC community. Uh, the NCAA had an investigation go on. They had five additional separate investigators, um, and all of them had found only that the players did indeed sell their shoes to 
this ACC fan and other people who were friends um, and other game tickets that they received. So players obviously get tickets um, that they can have, invite other people. Apparently, these players sold their tickets for spending money that they could use because obviously they're in college. Um, nonetheless, the NCAA decided to ban NC State from postseason play for the 89-90 season. And earlier, NC State limited itself to only 12 scholarships for the 1990 and 1991 season. And six separate entities investigated Jim Valvano and the NC State basketball program, including the NC State Faculty Senate in the North Carolina Attorney General, uh, the University of North Carolina Board of Governors. It was literally everyone. Uh, None of them found any evidence of recruiting violations or academic improperity or financial improperity. None of these were found on the part of Valvano or his staff. Uh, The NCAA investigator at the time handling Valvano's case even wrote a personal letter to Valvano saying that he believes he is not at fault and that he is a good coach. And although Jim was not named in the NCAA report in terms of suspensions or losing stuff in any way, a new chancellor came in uh, named Larry Monteith, and he came in, and after pressure from the board around him and just people that were in his ear, they forced for Valvano to have his resignation on April 7, 1990. In the two decades since Jim Valvano has retired, NC State has won six NCAA tournament games, which is the same number that Jim Valvano won in one season with the Wolfpack when they won their national title on route to their second title in school history, in addition to the legendary upset in which player named Lorenzo Charles had a buzzer beater that stunned that stunned, you know, future NBA legend and number one pick in the draft, Akeem Olajuwon, and his Houston team for Vavano to end up winning the title. Now, I he obviously wouldn't be coaching to this day, but just think if potential justice was served in that he was not forced to be fired just because a new chancellor came in and because other people were upset about what the program state was in or if it was just run properly and that the actions of those above him did not affect his job and potentially what kind of dynasty NC State would have had. And you see stuff like Carolina and Duke right now. I mean, Carolina went from Dean Smith and went right to Roy Williams and was able to succeed. And I think it's not far-fetched to say if you know, NC State was able to keep Jim Valvano there for double the time, maybe even more, like a 25-year 20, stretch, that we would have more bangers, more banners hung up, and we'd have more amazing alumni that we can call, you know, and look at as fans and say, hey, this guy went to my college and he was amazing, and we might even have a huge program now because maybe, you know, the attractiveness of the Jim Valvano State basketball group could have brought in new coaches that would have potentially carried on uh, to this day. So that's, I think, the biggest what if in NC State sports history. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, if anyone listening has a has a what if they want to talk about, comment on our Instagram. Also, just keep an eye out for our flyers and our promotional ads up around campus. Um, Ethan, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, no problem. I'll- and, you know, hopefully we see you again on here and and we will be back next week. So thanks for listening to Letter Red. Music in this podcast was Jonas Hipper's King of Sports and Vibe and Sneaky, licensed under Creative Commons from the Free Music Archive.